Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. From the Probabilities Collection of Interviews, a 1993 interview with Margaret Atwood about her novel, The Robber Bride. My co-host for the interview was Richard A. Lupoff, and the interview was conducted in Margaret Atwood's hotel suite shortly before her ride to the airport. You grew up in a forest, and yet most of the characters grew up in the city. Do you see a distinction between how you were raised and how they were raised? Oh, most definitely. They're all war babies, so they were all born somewhere between 1939 and 1946, and that affected their lives in many ways, and the lives of that generation were very much affected by that war. Uh, but I, for instance, grew up uh, with a stable family because my father was in a classified industry. Uh, forestry in Canada was very crucial to the war effort. And so I did not have my family disrupted in the way that every single one of the characters in the book does. But a lot of my friends did. And uh, my husband's father, for instance, was a general in that war, and he disappeared and 39, and he, he wasn't seen again for seven years. So my husband had the experience of this man vanishing when he was five, and then when he was 12, in comes a stranger. You know, they had corresponded by letter, but a lot of those men did not go back during the war. This is long, long before the age of rapid air transport, and we were in the age of convoys and all that kind of thing, and generals just didn't go back. Roz's father in the book, has a similar situation, only he's a criminal. He's not a criminal. He's a smuggler. (laughs) You see, and uh, I think you have to define criminality also by, okay, who's making the laws? I mean, it doesn't seem to me that a lot of these Nazi laws were, were laws that everybody should respect. So I suppose if he had been caught and if he had been tried by them, he would have been defined as a criminal. But we aren't so sure that he's exactly what you might call a criminal. And as Roz's uncle say, a war is stealing. People steal from one another, and the Nazis stole buckets, and Roz's father, among other things, steals from them. The Robber Bride can be read on two levels, as myth and as a a, a historical novel of the times. Which do you see it, or do you see it as both? Oh, I I would hope that a a novel could be read on at least two levels, and, and if you're really lucky, maybe seven. (laughs) So not only is it an historical novel of the times, it covers when you count them the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and a little bit of the 90s, uh, with the most of the focus being the 60s, 70s, and 80s, because it's got three stories, one for each decade. It's a novel for the recession. You get three for the price of one, like those packages of socks. <laughs> I like to give value for money. This is a novel with lots of value in it. You don't, you don't just get one story. You get three stories, and then you get all the stories that Xenia tells. She's the, the liar in the book, and we don't know whether her stories are true or not, but they're good stories. Then you also get 
In addition to that, you get a broad panoramic sweep of, of military history over the past 2,000 years. I mean, there's lots of sort of value per inch in this novel. Dick Lupoff and I had, had a uh, discussion on the way over, and I started by saying, I don't know if she'll be offended if I mention the relationship of The Robber Bride to a Stephen King novel. And he said, well, yes, perhaps it is a monster novel of sorts. Well, Stephen King is a gothic novelist, and to a certain extent, so am I. And it is indeed Roz who invokes the name of Frankenstein a couple of times. Uh, Xenia, in a way, is a is a creation of the of the unconsciousnesses of a number of the other characters in the book, and we all know that from time to time in our own lives, we create out of other real people. We create these somewhat supernatural beings. Most particularly when we fall in love, we have these gods and goddesses that later prove to have these human failings that we weren't prepared for, such as they don't pick up their socks off the floor, but uh, we've all had this kind of experience. Uh, and the other kinds of people we project onto in this, in this way, that we turn into figures from the, from the Jungian archetype collection, are people that we hate. So these are the two kinds of people that we endow with charisma, but it, it's us that's endowing them. As Alice says at the end of Alice in Wonderland, you're only a pack of cards. Uh, you mentioned Jungian archetypes, and that reminded me of two other writers who've been guests on this show, the late Philip K. Dick and Ursula Le Guin, mm -hmm. both of whom are very, very intrigued by that subject. Do you... Are you familiar with their works? I'm familiar with both of their works, and I'm an admirer of both of their works, most particularly of Ursula Le Guin. I think she's a wonderful writer. I love Left Hand of Darkness, and I have to admit to a sneaking affair with the Earthsea Trilogy, which I know is supposed to be for children, but I don't care. Let, let, let me hit you with something uh, written by an, a writer named Steve Paul in the Kansas City Star. He refers to you as Canada's leading woman of letters, and in fact, he nominates you for a Nobel Prize. How do you feel about this? I'm not old enough. It's also, I mean, all, all Canadians have to contend with this, with this lingering thing about Canadians. When, when I was a young writer, saying good Canadian writer was, was an oxymoron. I mean, it was just assumed there weren't any. Or even saying Canadian writer, people would kind of go, ha-ha. And in Britain, just recently, they had a quiz show called Dead or Canadian. This one's, <laughs> don't laugh, don't laugh. I'll be very offended if you laugh. Uh, can, can, Canadians, in fact, are the last group of people left, it must be, that you can make this kind of joke about and get away with it. You know, you couldn't say this about all kinds of other groups that we might choose to mention without being accused of racism or any of these bad ethnic behavior. But Canadians are still fair game. Why is that? Well, we do not know, but it is so. So I think I'm, um, I will not just have to contend with the dreaded being a woman, but I will more particularly have to contend with the dreaded being a Canadian, which is probably more strikes indeed against one. And with with the Americans, of course, they're so generous with their citizenship. I mean, they're quite quite happy to to just assume you are American. It's very kind of them. Uh, <laughs> but and it it lasts up until the point at which you're talking about National Book Awards and stuff like that. I mean, you're just not. I'm not in those races because, in fact, I'm not a citizen of the states. 
So there, there are these perceptual problems. I think of Canadians as the ultimate disguise artists and shape changers. We walk amongst you unknown, unseen, and if you like Stephen King's work, just think of all those hidden Canadians that have infiltrated <laughs> are doing. I mean, it's sort of the body snatchers. I mean, we're how, how do you know that your next-door neighbor may not be a Canadian? Recently, uh, Mavis Gallant was in our studio, a Canadian writer who has lived in Europe most of her life. And she said that from the perspective of Europe, she doesn't see very much of Canada or United States. She just sees North America. Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, when you're thinking of people, particularly in uh, mainland Europe, writing about uh, the North American continent, and what it usually means is that Canada is invisible, or people just assume you are American. In, in, in America, they assume you're American, and in Europe, they also assume you're American, unless you wear all those little maple leaf stickers plastered all over your knapsack, in which case they will not then be hostile to you. And a lot of Americans do this. It's the, the only case of kind of reverse disguise. Americans pretend to be Canadians so that they can travel unmolested <laughs> in these countries. <laughs> you know this is true. <laughs> you know what helps? Take little bottles of maple syrup with you and distribute them to the French. I love anything you can eat. <laughs> uh, I, I guess if you also say A a lot at the end of your sentence. Well, that's a bit of a myth now, come, come. I'd like to get back to The Robber Bride and the characters in it, because all of them are so striking. You have Tony, Karis, uh, Karen, and Roz opposing Xenia. Now, Tony, uh, is she more like you, do you think, than the other characters? She's a historian as you were. She's shorter than me. I longed to create a character shorter than me, because I'm so tired of people saying, I thought you would be taller. If they see your picture on the back of a book, they, they add the six-foot body onto it. <laughs> then I turn up and they say, oh, I thought you would be taller. So now I can say, I am not short. Tony is short. Karis is, quote, spiritual and, quote, psychic. Do you think that the psychicness she has, have you seen that in people? I recently read a piece in the paper that had interviewed a representative cross-section and asked them how many of them had had psychic experiences, by which we will mean seeing ghosts and having proleptic dreams, intuitive hunches, seeing auras, all of these things. Guess what the percentage was? 75. 75% of those interviewed said that they had had these experiences, had frequently not communicated them because they thought they would be called crazy. I don't mean that they had these experiences every day of their life. I mean that they had had experiences like this. So 75 is pretty high, a pretty high percent. Maybe Karis is more representative than you think. As for Karis's grandmother, who does this thing called blood stopping, you can read about this in books. And when you come to think of it, it's no more strange than fire walking and probably depends on some kind of um, auto-hypnosis. Do you take Karis more seriously in that sense then than Tony or Roz does? Well, I would have to, wouldn't I, because I wrote her. Tony and Roz are not writing her. I think they come to take her a little bit more serious, seriously towards the end when it turns out that the hunt she has that Xenia is dead turns out to be true, but there's another explanation for that, of course. 
maybe Kara's bumped Xenia off, and that's why she knows that Xenia is dead. I always like to give a certain amount of choice. Uh, everything that Kara's, every one of her manifestations could have another explanation, but I was reading a, an exchange of letters in the New York Times recently about synesthesia. Synesthesia is when you perceive colors as sounds, or when you think that numbers have colors, or when you think that sounds have tastes, this kind of thing. It's a lot more common amongst children than it is amongst adults. A lot of kids seem to have this capability and then lose it. And so it is with a number of Karis's abilities. They are more typical of, of children. But this is not stuff I make up, you know. There are people who have these abilities and um, are frequently considered uh, flaky or out of it by other people, as we know. The other aspect of Karis is her split personality, the Karen Karis. I, I know that many of the, the split personalities that have been documented also have abusive parents. Did you create those she's parents? Not a, uh, she's not a multiple personality in the, in the Sybil sense of things. Her split has been created quite deliberately by her, and she has um, made a decision about her life, which is namely she does not wish to live with the bad experiences that she has had, and therefore she puts them in a sack, a mental imaginary sack and drops it in the lake. It's it's interesting to me. I mean, I've read people like Alice Miller and I've read in quite a lot of the literature, but I've also known a lot of people. And if things were completely determinist, people who have had really bad childhood experiences would all be serial killers. But in fact, a number of the people that I have known who have had really bad childhood experiences have turned out to be quite wonderful people. And sometimes it's because they have made a, a deliberate decision. You know, this was done to me, but I am not now going to go and do these things to other people. And Karis is one of these, but she has to put a lot of effort into it. She has to put a lot of effort into keeping the bad at bay. And therefore, she surrounds herself with many little rituals and objects that help her to do this. And for me, this just comes from observation of real life. We don't know what happened to Xenia at the end. Does Margaret Atwood? You mean there are about six different explanations to what happened for what happened to her? I'd like to give the reader a chance to participate. But my question is, do you have, do you know what happened? I know what I think happened, but why should my opinion be determining? <laughs> well, just one question which relates to that in a way. Is Xenia human? Of course Xenia is human. You mean, is she, you, you think she's just some kind of an apparition that all these people are having? Well, I thought she might be an evil demon. No, I don't think she's an evil demon. I think she is a, a manipulator. I think she's very selfish. I think she is a liar, but notice that she doesn't, in fact, murder anybody. She's in it really mostly for herself, for her own sense of power, and um, she's, an, an, she's an adventurous, you know, and adventurouses like to go from one adventure to another, and con artists like to con people because they're good at it and it makes them feel superior. 
So uh, if you think people like this don't exist, please, please take another look at life. In, indeed, um, politics is, is full of uh, uh, people who lie, cheat, steal, and deceive. I mean, we know this. <laughs> well, but let's, let's move the focus from Xenia to Margaret Atwood, uh, the novelist. Are you a modern writer? Are you a traditionalist? A throwback? Am I a throwback? What a wonderful idea. Uh, is this some kind of Darwinian view of writerly evolution, that writers move along the time span from uh, in, a, in an arrow of progress and that modern is better than, than older? On, on the contrary, I, uh, well, uh, this is about you, not about me, but just let me tell you that for the <laughs> past year or so, I have been bathing in the works of Edith Wharton and just having a wonderful time. Edith Wharton, and, and Edith Wharton, of course, is Edith, a couple of Edith Wharton's f figures are the, are the godmothers of Xenia. In fact, Undine in, in The Custom of the Country is also a very manipulative woman who is in it for herself, as we, as we know and we have read that book. And another manipulative woman is the uh, antagonist to the quite wonderful heroine of uh, The House of Mirth. I can't remember the name, but she's the wife uh, whose letters the heroine acquires. And she is truly evil and drives our character indeed to destruction. So I, I guess my question in a, in a broader sense is this. Uh, has 20th century literature uh, sort of been going off a, a side path down a, a blind alley and is now returning to a, a, a better way of operating? Well, better, worse. Um, I, I don't think that the that the arts go along a path of progress. In other words, I don't think that Mahler is better than Mozart. I think that, that each artist works on her or his vision or view uh, and perfects that as, as much as he or she can. But I, I don't think, for instance, that, that the Iliad is, is worse than William Faulkner. <laughs> I, just, I don't think it happens to operate that way. So what you're asking is, um, are we getting back to character and plot? Well, in some ways, we have never left them. Uh, we have taken, some artists have taken a different view of them. And we've had, I think in the 80s, we had some novels that more or less pulled them pulled apart the idea of character and the idea of plot and rearranged them and put them back together. But these people were still t telling stories, and they were still dealing with people. And it is very hard to write a novel that doesn't tell a story and doesn't deal with people. Because what have you got? <laughs> well, we've read too many of those. <laughs> but you, you, you do agree, or, or, or do you agree, that, that there are superior works and inferior works? I agree that there are superior works and inferior works, but I don't think they're determined by what age they were written in or what genre. In other words, I don't think that a wonderful work of science fiction is inferior to a, quotes, uh, mainstream novel just because it's science fiction. I don't believe that a wonderful detective story is inferior by nature of its genre to, quote, serious fiction. I mean, I happen to be a big Raymond Chandler fan. Nobody, nobody, but nobody is better at furniture than Raymond. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, there's a statement, I believe it comes from Roz in The Robber Bride. 
about the appeal of the mystery, the sense of orderliness and the comfort that it gives in contrast to a chaotic world? Well, with a mystery of the classic kind, first of all, you find out who done it, which is something we often never find out in real life. And second, in the classic mystery uh, of the English kind, the person who got done in was usually somebody that we weren't that keen on anyway. So we knew it wasn't going to be us, and because we're nice people. And anyway, we hadn't done any of those bad things, such as been a miser. <laughs> that always really dooms you in those English novels. The American mystery then got somewhat more chaotic and uh, probably a little bit truer to life, and then innocent bystanders got done in, which which is, makes you m much more nervous, indeed, because you, too, could be an innocent bystander. The, uh, the structure of mysteries is very specific. The structure of the robber bride is very specific and, and represents a real departure in terms of structure for you. Uh, you've likened it to the, uh, I guess it's leitmotif of a symphony or box sets of gift soaps. What prompted you to create such a structured book? and do you think you'll ever do it again? Well, my books have often been more structured than you might have supposed. For instance, The Handmaid's Tale proceeds by alternating chapters of day and night. There's a whole bunch of chapters in it called Night. And um, Cat's Eye was more structured than you might think, too, because each of its sections has an appearance in it of Cordelia in some disguised form or another. This one is even more structured because it's about illusion and artifice. So it is appropriate that it should have an illusionistic and uh, structure and one that deals in, in artifice. But also, if you're telling three stories, you better pay some attention to structure or the things will just go rambling right off the edge of the cliff. They will get completely out of control. Did you have a specific reason why you set Tony's story first, then Karis's, and then Roz's? Tony is an historian, and if there is a controlling voice to the novel, it is Tony's voice because she gets the bookends. She opens the story and she closes the story. So I would say that if any of the, the voices is uh, more in charge of the story, it's slightly weighted in the direction of of Tony because she's the one interested in overall views and in historical perspectives and in reconstructions. And one of the things, of course, that she wants to do is to reconstruct the story of Xenia just as she has reconstructed all these historic battles and moments of history. You have three characters who all seem to play very different mythic roles, the intellectual Tony, the spiritual Karis, the action-oriented Roz. I was probably terribly influenced in childhood by those articles that came out in about 1954 about the ectomorph, the endomorph, and the mesomorph. <laughs> but we all we all arrange things in sets. I mean, for instance, and it's just it's common sense that if you're going to have three characters in a book, they have to be different from one another. Otherwise, the reader won't be able to tell them apart. Some things about about fiction are so. Uh, simple-minded and obvious that people just overlook them completely. If I had made them all, uh, you know, six-foot-tall redheads, I mean, it would have been an entirely different novel. <laughs> I might try that. What about it? Three characters, all of whom are six-foot-tall redheads. 
Xenia, at the end of the book, trashes all three characters. Were you feeling that way by the time you'd written 450 pages about them? Well, what she trashes is their illusions. And she tells them really, she does really what Becky Sharp does at the end of Vanity Fair. And you could say that she's doing them a favor, just as Becky Sharp does Amelia, the sentimental heroine of Vanity Fair, a favor by saying, stop worshipping your stupid dead husband who wanted to run away with me on the eve of the Battle of Waterloo, and here's the note, you know? And at that point, Amelia does stop worshipping this rather awful husband of hers, and she marries the man that she really should have married, namely the, the very chivalrous best friend of the husband. So you might say that what Xenia is doing is drawing the curtain aside and saying, look, you know, let's just take a look at what really went on here. On the other hand, Xenia is also a liar. So you get your choice. <laughs> I have to tell you that Becky Sharp is a liar, too. I mean, another way of reading that novel is that she forged the note. <laughs> How about this? Can you sing Oh My Darling Clementine backwards? I can only sing it if I can look at the words. I'm the person who's saying, with Robertson Davies, anything you can write, I can write better. We did it to raise money for Penn. We just don't do this on the spur of the moment. I used my Annie Get Your Guts for Margaret Atwood. Oh, that's one of those wonderful questions that's impossible to answer. Because unlike many of the characters in my books, I never predict the future. You've been listening to a 1993 Probabilities Archive interview with Margaret Atwood about her novel, The Robber Bride. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff, and in the coming months we'll be presenting further Margaret Atwood interviews. The next one is about Alias Grace and was recorded in 1997. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>